I'm going to jump right in uh, to this. So if you want to open up Matthew, this is, we're in the, the last of the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But we're in the last of the Beatitudes. So if you want to turn to Matthew 4, verse 23, I'm just going to read this through, and then we're going to just um, talk through this last Beatitude of Jesus's. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. Chapter 5, one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Into today's passage, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So just as a reminder, as we kind of close out these Beatitudes, we're talking here and Jesus is talking about the culture of the kingdom of God. He's not giving us a list of, of moral standards that we have to kind of scrap our way up to. He's just describing what it's like in the human life and heart when the kingdom of God takes root and takes hold. Like, like the, the spirit of God and the kingdom of God in us, when we give it room, it produces these kinds of things in our life. So he's not here describing what you need to aspire to be. He's just describing what happens when, when we give God the space in our life to really powerfully work and move. And here we get to the end of these Beatitudes. And you would think, like as we're reading through these Beatitudes, you would think that, that a, a community of people who were living in humility or gentleness or who were... Uh, exercising meekness on the earth or people who were striving for reconciliation and peace in their relationships and on the earth. You would think that people who were walking with just a desperate brokenness for God and other things, you would think that people characterized by those things would be welcomed in society and in community. And Jesus is kind of drawing our attention to a reality of the kingdom here that actually these, these principles, these character traits of the kingdom of God are actually despised by the kingdom of darkness and the, and the kingdoms of our world. That when you actually begin to live this out, when you become a peacemaker, when you live for humility and humbling yourself and you pursue a pure heart before God, when you start actually doing these things, the response from culture and from our world is not to celebrate that, but to actually be offended by that, to actually uh, feel the need to confront that stuff in our lives. So living in the Beatitudes, the way that Jesus is describing it, creates a culture of resistance and disdain. And he's saying, look, like, here's the culture of heaven if you're gonna walk in this, you better be ready because it's not gonna be received very well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived uh, during the Second World War and was made famous 
as a pastor, he, he left America to go back to his homeland in Germany and was, was executed by the Third Reich right near the end of the war, like at the very end. He said this, here at the end of the Beatitudes, the question arises as to where in this world such a faith community actually finds a place. So then how do we live if this is the description of the kingdom? He goes on to say, they find that place at the cross. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. With him, they lost everything and with him, they found everything. Jesus is talking about uh, several dimensions of persecution and we're just gonna walk through those. The first word he uses um, for persecute, which is literally persecute, is, is actually a word that speaks of physical persecution. So this is Jesus talking about the reality that that this kingdom kind of living will cause a visceral response around you and that there's a possibility that you will then step into a, a systematic oppression of that. That's what this word means, uh, to systematically oppress or harass, to cause to suffer. And this word Jesus is using carries the the bringing of physical action against someone. So Jesus is talking about physical violence against those who are, are walking in the culture of heaven on the earth. This has been going on for a long time. It was nothing new to Jesus and it certainly was nothing new in the first century church. Uh, uh, the disciples of Jesus, except for John, all of them were killed for their faith. In the first few hundred years of the church, they experienced great physical persecution. Many uh, Christians were um, brought into the Colosseums in the Roman Empire, and uh, they would dress them in uh, basically the skins of animals, push them out into the middle of the Colosseum, and then watch the lions and beasts tear them apart. Many of them were burned at the stake and this was a reality for the early church. They experienced physical persecution at the hands of the Roman government. One of the most famous was a man named Polycarp and he was, he was a disciple of John, the apostle John. So the guy who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. So Polycarp was one of his uh, disciples Later on in his life, in his mid-80s, Polycarp was arrested because he refused, when told he needed to, he refused to take a pinch of incense and burn it on an altar and declare allegiance to Caesar as Lord. He said, I'm not going to do that. And uh, in this time, like there was great conflict in the church because in reality, it didn't really mean anything. Like they, they knew that Caesar wasn't really Lord. So what was the harm in just taking a pinch of salt, saying something you don't mean, and then having kind of the government off your back? They didn't, they, they really wrestled with this. But Polycarp, the disciple of John said, I'm not doing it. Then the, the Roman uh, leaders in his area said, take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile your Christ but Polycarp would not relent. This is what Polycarp said. 80 and six years I have served him. Notice how Polycarp doesn't kind of uh, start in on a defensive doctrine here or religious principle or uh, like, you know, this, these are my views. He's saying 80 and six years I've served him. For Polycarp, it was relational. I'm not, this isn't just like a religious framework I'm standing up for or a, a system of rights that I have. I'm, I'm, I'm standing up for this relationship that I have. 86 years, I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governor continued threatening him with devourment by wild beasts and then being burned at the stake. It didn't get any worse, right? Let them rip you apart, then we'll just burn you. But Polycarp was steadfast. This is what Polycarp said. This is incredible. This is uh, most likely in the context of the Colosseum where there were thousands of people there to watch this spectacle. So Polycarp is most likely uh, on the, the dirt floor of the Colosseum. The governor is up in his position of authority 
And he's saying, look, like, just do it and I'll let you go. Like, we don't actually really even care. What's the harm? Just do it. And Polycarp says, no. And in front of everybody, this is what he said. The fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long. After a while, it goes out. But what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment, which are in store for the ungodly. Whoa. The writer uh, that's writing this historical biography says that Polycarp's disposition the whole time. So he's like, that's like straight up confrontation. Like you think that burning me at the stake is going to do anything. That fire is going to go out in a half an hour. Or I don't know how long it takes to burn a body alive. <laughs> I've never Googled that. Has anybody? Don't put your hand up. All right. Um, but, but he's like, that fire is going to go out. You have no idea. There's, there's a bigger picture here that I'm living for. But it says, actually, the historians note that his disposition was overflowing with courage and joy. And his whole countenance was bearing with grace. Polycarp was an, an angry, defensive Christian who was just shouting back at the government. He was actually standing in grace and in joy, in peace. Goes on to say, the crowd cried out for Polycarp to be burned alive and they supplied the kindling. <laughs> That's incredible, hey? It's like, all right, everybody, bring your firewood. We're gonna burn this guy alive. Um, nobody else finds that funny? All right. They supplied the wood for that, which they had brought along for the purpose. The chains that bound Polycarp to the stake were fastened, and the guards tried to nail him in place as well, but Polycarp insisted that wasn't necessary. This is what he said, let me be. He who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake without your making sure of it with nails. With his final breath, he cast his eyes up to heaven and he said, for this and for all else besides, I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee. Through, your, through our eternal high priest in heaven, thy beloved son, Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory to thee and the Holy Ghost now and for all ages to come. Amen. The flames went up and Polycarp was of this earth no longer. Jesus to his disciples and everyone around on this moment during the Sermon on the Mount says, look, you are going this Kingdom life is going to elicit a visceral response by the kingdom of darkness in the structures and systems of this world. And you are going to potentially face physical persecution. And that hasn't actually let up. I want to give you just a few stats from between September 2019 and October 2020. So just, just over a year. Here's a map of uh, the countries of the world. The countries that are in that orange color would be countries that they say there is moderate uh, physical persecution present in those countries. The ones that are in red would be countries that they say there is extreme, uh, extreme physical torture and persecution in those countries. That's like this year, last year, a year ago. Um, there's rankings, actually, that organizations do, Voice of the Martyrs, Open Door, uh, things like that. And this is this year's ranking of the uh, countries that are most dangerous to just simply be a Christian in. We're not talking about, like, street evangelism or, like, you know, like, hanging out even in church like this. We're talking about, like, you get snatched from walking between your home and work, like you're just minding your own business, but they know you're a Christian. North Korea, that's been number one for 20 years on the list. Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India, and the list goes on and on. That is present day uh, information 
realities of these countries that are torturing Christians, killing them. A few more stats. Today, uh, as represented by all these countries, represent, these countries represent 309 million Christians right now who are living in the midst of extreme or severe physical persecution or the threat of it. In the last year, 4,761 Christians have been killed for their faith. In the last year, 4,488 churches or Christian buildings have been attacked. In the last year, 1,710 Christians were abducted for their faith. You know, I, I'm reading this book right now. It's called Trial by Fire. And it's the story of the first thousand years of church history. And in this book, the, in the introduction, the author of this book, this historian, uh, in the very beginning of this book, he, he draws this analogy and he says, you know, uh, Christmas time, like we're getting close to that. In our culture, in Canada, United States, and much of the world, um, Christmas time is a time for like, we look forward to it, right? We're getting together with family. We've got, um, you know, God's peace on earth and Emmanuel, God with us and all of these things that we look forward to. But for many Christians right now on the earth, Christmas specifically is a dreaded time. And I read this story in this book of, uh, in the last few years, this, this woman in Afghanistan, and she was a mom of four kids. She was pregnant with another. And on Christmas morning, she was dragged out of her house by her employer, stripped totally naked, and made to walk through the village square while they beat her with lead pipes. They ended up killing her baby in utero. And the charge against her was being a Christian. That's what it was. That was Christmas morning. For many people, Christmas specifically is a day that extremists target to make an example of Christians all over the earth. It's, it's staggering to read the stories of what happens on this day that we celebrate with presents and food and family and fun and all of that good stuff is a day that's dreaded by so many today simply for the faith that they have in Jesus the second kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about is used uh, with the word mock, that they will mock you. And this is a verbal abuse, uh, cursing, and insults, being ridiculed or taunted or chided. So Jesus is saying not only can you expect physical persecution, but you can expect to be verbally abused. You know, in the first century church, it wasn't just that they were being uh, physically tortured and killed. You know, in, in popular Roman culture in the first century, they, they, they horrifically distorted intentionally and twisted communion. So, right, like the taking of the Lord's Supper, his body and his blood, like given for us, right? The stuff that we practice. In, in popular Roman culture, they twisted that and they, they would deride Christians calling them cannibals because of Jesus' teaching that you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? That's hard teaching. But the Roman, that's not funny, Eli. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the Roman, I just made him super embarrassed. But the Roman culture in that time would actually use that in a derogatory, inflammatory way where they would mock and ridicule Christians, calling them cannibals. They would even actually warn their friends and neighbors, don't let your kids around these Christians because they'll abduct them so that they can kill them in this gruesome and brutal ceremony. You know how in scripture, Paul calls like men, his brother and women, sisters, right? Brothers and sisters. Well, in Roman culture, they twisted that in popular Roman culture and they would call Christians incestuous and accuse them of all kinds of vile and disgusting things because they would call somebody else their brother or sister. And so not only did they endure physical persecution in the first few hundred years 
of following after Jesus, they uh, endured horrific verbal mockery. Right now, we are in a time where we're experiencing a legitimate growing secularism on the earth that has pushed uh, Judeo-Christian ethic and belief and conviction from the center of our society out to the fringes of that. And the result of that is that being public about your faith like being willing to talk about your faith socially, online, on your platform, being willing to mention anything about Jesus or God will actually come with conflict and resistance. Just to mention it out loud, they'll come with mockery and disdain. Like you're disgusting. How could you believe that? How could you hold to those views? Again, Bonhoeffer says, those who follow Jesus will be different from the world in renouncing property, happiness, rights, righteousness, honor, and violence. They will be offensive to the world. The ideas of Jesus right now are offensive to our culture. And part of that persecution that Jesus talks about is the verbal mockery and assault that we experience. There's a graffiti artist in first century Rome. Uh, so at a street level, I wanna just show you this, this graffiti art that was found in first century Rome. So here we have um, a cross, a crucifixion scene, but instead of Jesus, it's a donkey. And the statement being made here, this is like people, just like Toronto downtown street art kind of stuff, right? This is popular culture. The, the statement being made is Jesus is a joke. Like you're a fool for, for pledging allegiance to this guy. You're a fool if you think that he means anything or is anything significant. This is the reality of what was happening all around, it was no easy thing to be a follower of Jesus, even in the first century. Today, in their book, uh, Good Faith, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman say that there's two words right now that more than any other are the ones that define the perception of our society of Christianity right now. The first one is irrelevant, meaning that our society largely believes that the teaching of Jesus has nothing to do with their life. Jesus has nothing to say about modern life, culture, society. So the first word that really defines the, the perception and viewpoint of the culture we live in is it's irrelevant. Jesus has nothing to say to my life, to my choices, my ethics, my relationships, how I spend my time, who I sleep with, what I do. doesn't matter. Jesus has nothing to say. He's irrelevant. The second word that is a word that defines the, the, the tenor, the tone of our society is extreme. Right now, more than ever, ascribing to the Beatitudes or to the teaching or life of Jesus is seen as extreme and dangerous in our culture and in our society. The ideas of Jesus as it relates to the human life are extreme and dangerous to our society. There are several ways that we experience them, uh, this reality. Probably one of the predominant ones right now is in sexual ethic. The ideas of Jesus are offensive and dangerous to our culture. In his teaching on using sexual restraint, his teaching to the Romans was radical. Like the, the idea that you would restrain your desires, that there's something bigger and more purposeful to live for than gratifying just the, the moment by moment pleasures that your body craves was radical then, but that is dangerous now to even, um, even suggest that Jesus' teaching 
on surrendering your life, surrendering your desires to him and not living to gratify them is seen as dangerous and extreme. How dare you tell me not to satisfy what myself wants? It seems suppressive and oppressive and dangerous. The biblical orthodox, for thousands of years, the biblical orthodox view on human sexuality is seen as extreme and dangerous. In my study and in my humble opinion, the Bible's very clear that human sexuality is confined to one man and one woman in covenant relationship for one life. End of story, period, end of sentence. There's no gray areas. There's no redefining that. Out of our desire to, to kind of meet people and love them and, and our, 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 the pressure we feel from society, we're bending and we're flexing that and we're changing definitions and meaning. But, but Scripture and Jesus affirm, like, this is how I made you. This is what I've made you for. But today in our culture, to, to stand as someone in the public square who believes in a traditional view of human sexuality, uh, orthodox Christian view is met with derision, mockery, and sometimes even violence. That's just the reality that we live in. Jesus goes on to add another word, which is reviling. And this is a serious insult, and it's actually casting injury through abusive words. This is the emotional component of it. So he's talking physical, he's talking uh, mentally, like through words, and now he's talking on an emotional level that you'll be wounded emotionally potentially for following me. But listen to what Jesus says as the defining reasons for persecution. The first reason is for righteousness or for doing right. The second reason is because you are my followers. We've defined righteousness before, but that means to live according to Jesus's standard for our life. Righteousness is living according to what Jesus says are the boundaries for our life that are created for our flourishing and for our renewal and for our hope and for our peace and for um, our best. He's put boundaries around us and He's saying, look, you're going to be persecuted. If you want to follow me and, and live within the standard of living that I'm calling you to, it's going to come with a, a cost. One theologian said, this is Jesus saying, if you're going to imitate me and my character, watch out. If you're going to actually live for me, not just say you believe me, not just sort of hold doctrinal or ethical or theological positions, but if you're going to make decisions in this life that are actually the kind that I would make, if you're going to imitate me, you better watch out. So Jesus blesses those who, in their pursuit of imitating him, face persecution. Daryl Johnson said this, Jesus is not blessing those who get persecuted for being obnoxious in peacemaking, or those who get persecuted for being tactless, or those who are culturally insensitive as they bear witness to the world. Jesus is not congratulating those who are persecuted for being dogmatically dogmatic or narrow-mindedly narrow-minded. Jesus is not applauding the thrill-seeking confrontationalist. He's not applauding the guy who gets right up into somebody's face that he has no relationship with, no relational equity. He's not applauding the guy that gets up into somebody's face and starts kind of throwing down truth on them like it's a hammer to bludgeon them. And then when they get upset with him, he cries, oh, persecution. No, that's not the rules that Jesus is saying we play by. That's not kingdom life. That's not beatitude culture. 
of being obnoxious or bullying or intentionally confrontational. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not applauding the thrill-seeking confrontationalist or those with a victim complex. Jesus is blessing those who find themselves in trouble because of righteousness. God, I'm just trying to imitate you in my life. I'm not trying to, to get in somebody's face. I'm not trying to stir things up. I'm not trying to be confrontational or, or radical. I'm just trying to follow you and imitate you. D.A. Carson says this, the final beatitude does not say blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable or because they rave like wild-eyed fanatics or because they pursue some religio-political cause. The believers described in this passage are those determined to live as Jesus lived. You know, the first time that I encountered anything remotely like persecution. I was um, around 18 and I was in the Middle East on a, the first time I went cross-culturally into mission. And uh, there were several of us from North America on this team and we were joined by an Egyptian evangelist and his wife, Samir and Louisa. And Samir is like, he's like an Egyptian Billy Graham, really. Even today, he's got a uh, He's got um, a TV network in the Middle East. He, he does um, Christian shows, evangelistic shows that are piped into tens of millions of homes all through the Middle East in Arabic. And that's how God has just used him. We were traveling in Egypt with him. And for the first half of our trip, we were in Northern Egypt, uh, Cairo, Alexandria, um, along the Suez and a whole bunch of other amazing places. And, um, and those are large cosmopolitan modern centers. And so everything was great. It was really good. About halfway through the trip, we boarded a train uh, for our next assignment. And um, that train took us 12 hours uh, overnight south into Southern Egypt. And our first stop was this small little town. So think like Beamsville <laughs> kind of thing um, in Egypt. And uh, so it was an overnight train. The sun was just coming up. We're getting ready for our stop. We've, we've got our backpacks on and we're waiting at the train doors. And as soon as the doors open, there are five or six soldiers there with their machine guns. And uh, as soon as the doors open, they kind of grab us, not violently, but just kind of grab us and scurry us off to the side. They separated us, uh, Westerners, from Samir and Louisa, the Egyptians, and they, they moved us into a holding room in their police station there. And while we were in that holding room for several hours, they were grilling us with questions like, what are you doing here? What's, what's your intent? What's your purpose? Da, 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 all that stuff. After a number of hours, they let us out and we saw that they had also let out Samir and Louisa. And they said, okay, we're gonna take you to the place that you're staying, um, but you're not allowed to leave. So you're under house arrest for the next, whatever time you're here. And um, so this is like in the late 90s. So uh, we're standing outside of this police station and uh, up beside us walks a, a horse and carriage. <laughs> so just clop, 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 clop. And they said, get in this carriage. So we got in the carriage and we're all together now with Samir and Louisa too. And they, they put this cover down on the carriage. It was pitch black. You couldn't see in or out. The whole thing was covered. And I said to Samir, like, what, what's going on here? Like, I don't understand what's happening. I was so naive, like, so I just, I, I didn't know the reality of anything. And he said, well, this area of Egypt is known for extremists and they're known to target Christians. And you're like a six foot four tall white kid that draws a lot of attention. You should see one of the pictures we have at home of me by the pyramids, like I'm doing like the walk like an Egyptian thing, right? But I'm beside some Egyptians and I look like a giant, like a literal giant. So they're, they're like, you know, for your own safety, they're gonna take you in this carriage, hide you, because they don't want you to draw any attention 
We don't want trouble here. We don't want you to make the news in North America as an example here. So they took us to our, 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 our place we were staying and we were, we were told, you can't leave here. We, like it's too dangerous for you to leave. And so we did some ministry there in this little town as best we could for a week or something like that. And then we moved to a neighboring city that was larger. It was like St. Catherine's size now maybe. And we had a little bit more freedom there, but they assigned to us, um, they assigned to us uh, plain clothes police officers who worked for the government. And these guys literally did not leave our side. Like from the moment we walked out of the little place we were staying in the morning, they were never more than a few feet away from us to protect us. When we walked up to the church that we were doing some ministry in, the church had 12 or 14 foot high concrete walls all around it. And it had guard stations at the doors, big giant iron doors to this church. And I, I said, what? Like, this is weird. Like, why is this? And they said, well, you know, even a few months ago, there was an extremist who broke in during a Sunday service and opened fire and massacred a bunch of people in that literal church that I, we were going into. They said, that's just a reality. That's a part of the cost of living here and being a Christian in this area of the world. The irony was that in this church, they, they weren't cowering in fear. They weren't angry and grumpy and disgruntled and complaining. They were filled with joy and peace. They were filled with life. It was the, the weirdest dichotomy ever. But it was because of Jesus. It wasn't because they were trying to make some point. They weren't trying to overthrow the government or make some larger societal point. They were just simply following in the way of Jesus. And it was coming with a cost. Jesus says, it's because of me and living like me that some of you will face this same kind of persecution. We're in a war, he says. In John 15, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than their master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. Philippians, this is Paul, Philippians 1.29, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. What Jesus is clarifying here, and this comes to me with great conviction, is something that I've been deeply wrestling with and over in the last year and a half as we walk through the things that we have in our culture and society. What Jesus is clarifying for us is that persecution based on political agenda is not a valid qualifier for being persecuted for him. Being persecuted, singled out, ridiculed, being, uh, you know, um, verbally abused or things like that for political stance is not actually what Jesus is talking about here. This is something I've been deeply wrestling with in my own life. You know, you may not know this about me, but I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> Just ask Rochelle. <laughs> I don't love, I don't like it. I struggle when somebody gets into that mode and they're like, you got to do this and do that. And I, I have a hard time with that. And as I've wrestled with scripture over this last year and a half and my own response to everything happening, I've just sensed the conviction of the word in the spirit saying, Andrew, I'm not calling you to be a martyr for charter rights. Our, our Canadian political charter rights are a great blessing from God. They are a great blessing from God. But we cannot claim persecution 
for Jesus while holding up charter rights as the reason we're, we're pushing against government. Jesus here is not leading us into a political battle. You could even make the argument, and I think it might be a strong one, that our charter rights are being infringed on. But that actually doesn't allow us scripturally to defy government. This is what I've been wrestling with. I'm not telling you what to think or believe. I'm just telling you what I've been deeply wrestling with in my own responses. Do you know, in my searching of scripture in the last year, I can find no place where God says your, your societal freedom is a God-given right. The freedom we're blessed to live in in Canada, I can find no scriptural basis to say that's a right from me. So fight for it. I can't. I, I've been looking, trust me. I've been looking for it. That idea might be enshrined in the Constitution of the United States, but it's not enshrined in Scripture. Jesus actually gives us a different way, and it's the way of suffering and surrender not of standing to posture ourselves to fight for a societal idea that we want to have because we're not willing to walk in suffering even in our own lives right now. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from it all. Yes, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. You know, I love how Paul makes that statement. Evil people and imposters will flourish. I take that as a call for us to be careful, especially in the West, to be careful with our Western theology of God's blessing equals prosperity. God's blessing equals freedom. God's blessing equals the ability for me to live exactly how I want. God's blessing for me is to be totally uninhibited by anything in my life. What Paul is saying is actually evil people are going to flourish and prosper. Our assessment of what's happening in our life, we just have to be really careful of what we pin on God and what we pin on the devil. And we live in a culture that is obsessed with self and independence and these things, and so sometimes uh, it's easy for us, and it's easy for me sometimes in our culture to say that any form of suffering, any form of pain, any form of constriction to any of my movements or anything in my life is the work of the devil because that's not what God wants for me, and I can't find that in Scripture anywhere. Paul is saying, watch out with your theology. Like, it's, it's great to be blessed by God. It's great to have financial, um, you know, stability. And it's great to have the amazing things we have. There's nothing wrong with those things. We're not called to just live in abject poverty for the sake of it. We have these amazing blessings from God, but we need to be careful when we start to make assessments of what is or is not God based on what we have or don't have, where we can go or not go, what we can do or not do in our life. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul in 2 Corinthians is defending himself to the Corinthians. Something has happened from his first uh, writing there to the second one. In 2 Corinthians, he's defending his uh, spiritual authority as an apostle, as a leader. 
Because what's happened in the church in Corinth, these people Paul calls super apostles, they've come in and they're like, they're amazing communicators and they're enigmatic leaders and they've got a great way of preaching and they've got all the right little slogans and they're, they're, they're like powerful in personality and they're, they're, they're drawing the Corinthians to them and they're looking at Paul and going, ah, what are you compared to these guys? Like they're the ones that have all the Twitter followers, have these huge ministries and all this apparatus around them. And Paul is now defending his authority spiritually. And what does he use to defend his authority? I want you to hear this. This is how Paul defends his spiritual authority. Again, I say, don't think that I am a fool to talk like this, but even if you do, listen to me, and I would uh, love to be a fool in person. Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I'm gonna do it anyway, he says. And then he talks about the times that he's been shipwrecked and starving and beaten and abused and run out of cities and tortured. The, the suffering for Paul was literally the defense of his spiritual authority. Not a high position in society or the most Twitter followers or whatever it is. For Paul, suffering and pain and hardship and hunger and persecution were the basis of his spiritual authority. And that's what he appeals to when it's challenged. But we live in a culture that uses wealth and power and fame and influence, church size, church budget, blessing, and the ability to overcome suffering as a basis for our authority. That's not what Paul teaches. First Thessalonians 2, this is Paul again. Then dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who because of their belief in Christ suffered from their own people, the Jews. Later on in 1 Thessalonians, finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens and we sent Timothy to visit you. He's our brother and God's coworker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come and they did as you well know. Paul's not the only one talking about suffering. First Peter 2. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Again, listen to that description. Patiently endure unjust treatment. Not screaming and fighting about it. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. 1 Peter 3, 9 and 14, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Again, Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. What they're saying and what Jesus is saying is to align with me, to align with Jesus, is to align against evil. And that's going to come with a cost. Scott McKnight says this, blended together the persecuted then are those who seek God's will in spite of what others want. Who love God so much they are faithful to God when oppressed. And who follow Jesus so unreservedly they suffer for him. 
Inherent in persecution then are both a love of God and a denial of self. What I wanna leave with you here as we kind of land this plane is most of our thinking about suffering and persecution is the external form, like what's coming at us from others or from culture or society. But there's also an internal form of suffering and that's what Scott McKnight is alluding to and that comes with the denial of self. According to Jesus, we're called to be willing to enter into the suffering that comes with crucifying our flesh, our desires, and our inner person to make way for the desires of God. There's a suffering that we're called into when we are in confrontation with others. There's a suffering of not having the last word in an argument or in a fight. There's an entering in of like, that's actually crucifying my flesh. What I wanna do right now is let you have another three sentences of my great wisdom and truth in this situation. I wanna set the record straight. I wanna have the last word, but there's a suffering, a crucifying of my inner self when I refuse to give myself the right to have the last word. And I don't always do that. I'm not proclaiming that I do, but there is actually an internal self-denial and suffering that comes with that. A suffering that God is inviting us into in our relationships, the suffering of not being right, of not demanding to be heard, the suffering that comes when we are the first to initiate forgiveness and repentance and humility, the suffering that comes, when we're willing to be told the truth about how we've wounded and hurt others and we don't deflect or defend ourselves, the suffering that comes when I say, God, I wanna carry your kingdom culture in my marriage or in my parenting. And so what that means is that I'm not just gonna always gratify my desire to assert my rights or my power, my influence, my parental position over my kids or some quasi-spiritual sort of, manhood authority over my wife. I'm gonna allow myself and my inner person to be crucified and I'm going to actually be willing to walk into that kind of suffering. The kind of suffering that doesn't need to be heard in the public square. Or my opinion about something, sometimes it might need to be shared, but I think more times than not, at least in my own life, it doesn't need to be shared. I don't need to air it out and voice it out. There's a, a kind of suffering that we're invited into. And this kind of suffering, what it does is it confronts the spirit of rebellion in us. It confronts in us the spirit of independence. And brings us in humility under the leadership of God. Two final things. What does suffering produce then? Hebrews 5.8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. If we wanna be faithful to Jesus, we have to be willing to allow our, ourselves, our flesh, our desires to be crucified, to walk through the fire and the suffering of laying our rights and our life and our opinion and our need to be right and all of that stuff, laying it down. And instead, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, to prefer the other. What does it look like to be more interested in the benefit and the good for Rochelle than just for me in this moment? It produces obedience and that obedience then leads to spiritual maturity. The second thing it does is it forms us into the character of Christ. First Peter, again, since then Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. 
under, I, I have this underlined in my Bible. If you have suffered physically for Christ, you're finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Suffering is a, a vehicle to shape us into the character of God. And yes, our natural desire is to avoid it at all costs, to skip around it, to suppress it, to move beyond it. But sometimes actually what Jesus is doing is inviting us into the middle of it. Did you know that John the Baptist, they say his ministry was between six months and, and 18 months. So his, his whole ministry over, like not even two years long, had kind of waited his whole life and his whole ministry took place in the desert. He had, John the Baptist is said by Jesus to be the greatest man who ever walked the earth, aside from Jesus. John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever walked the earth. As soon as Jesus came on the scene, his ministry was eclipsed by Jesus. He was dragged into prison. Eventually he was beheaded. He lived his whole life as a, a desert Bedouin in the middle of nowhere. And yet Jesus says he was the greatest man who ever walked the earth. John knew what it was like to willfully enter into suffering, to let his flesh be crucified and to not live for the perspective of the world around him. Scott McKnight says, just in closing, if verse 10 promises us the kingdom by enduring persecution, verse 12 has the phrase of Jesus that our reward is great. So Scott McKnight says, the notion here is that one's eternal kingdom state correlates to one's response to God in the present life. What we do now matters. What we choose to dig in and fight for matters. And again, I'm not going to play the role of the Holy Spirit and try and, uh, try and instill my own version of conviction on you. I'm just saying from searching the scriptures and deeply wrestling with God for my own life, what I just sense him repeating over and over and over again is, Andrew, are you willing to suffer for me? I had this moment a couple of weeks ago at a conference. I was just there as a guest. I didn't know anybody, so it was great. I just sat in the back and I was just pouring my heart out to God and I was saying, it's been so hard to lead in this season. Like I can't do anything right, I feel like sometimes. I'm exhausted spiritually and emotionally. It's been so difficult. Why does it have to be like, is this really what I, I didn't even wanna do this, so I didn't even sign up for it. But is this really what it's like in your kingdom? Like, is this what I have to look forward to? And in that moment, I just, as clear as anything, as the worship was going on, I just felt the conviction, but also just the, the great glorious presence of God come and fill the space where I was. And he said, Andrew, suffering is the way I build you to maturity. Don't push it aside. Don't try and escape it. Don't try and, you know, subvert it. Suffering is how I work in your life to shape you into the person I'm calling you to be. And he reminded me of Peter. The Peter we read about in the Garden of Gethsemane who's cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant because he's trying to inaugurate the messiahship of Jesus and confront the Roman Empire is a very different Peter who's writing these words under the rule of Domitian to his followers to say, if you've suffered physically, you're done with sin. Something happened in Peter, and I think it was what happened on the beach with Jesus. This is a different Peter who under the, the vicious second wave of persecution with Domitian, 
is telling his followers to submit to government, to obey, to live such deeply conformed lives to the image of Christ that no one, no one could bring accusation against them. That's a different Peter than the one who's cutting off ears in the garden. You know, historians say there's a, a story about Peter that was making its way in the first and second centuries. So under Nero, the first persecution, much of Rome uh, caught on fire and Nero um, was blamed by the public for this huge fire that destroyed much of the city. They actually, there were rumors that Nero started it so that he could build a big palace for himself. And so to divert attention, Nero blamed the Christians for it. And he started persecuting the church. And there's this story um, from that time period that's so powerful that they, it's just kind of folklore. We don't know how true it is or isn't, but there's a story of Peter fleeing from Rome. So he's fleeing now the, the heavy hand of Nero and the persecution that's there. And as he's fleeing the city, as the story goes, the Holy Spirit meets him on the road and says to him, Peter, where are you going? And in that moment, Peter stopped, they say, and he remembered the words of Jesus that in the end of his life, he was going to be led where he didn't want to go. And he was going to be uh, met with crucifixion. That's what Jesus predicted. Peter, as he's fleeing Rome, is met by God. And the historians say that Peter in that moment heard the voice of God. He turned around and he went back into the city. And he decided, God, I'm not going I'm not gonna walk away from the fire. I'm gonna walk right into it with you. The witness of Peter is, had thousands of years of fruit. Why don't you stand with me? My question for us as we leave, and as we process this again, I. It's a bit terrifying to talk about this, especially because we don't talk about it often, but as I've wrestled with and asked questions of my own heart and my own life and my own conscience and all of this with God, I would leave you with a couple of questions. Number one, where are the areas in your life where you're refusing to suffer? Where you are asserting yourself and not willing to enter into any kind of suffering. Maybe it's relational in your marriage. You're not willing to be the one who comes in brokenness and says we need restoration. Maybe it's in family or job, culture or society. Where are you resisting God's call to surrender and suffer with him? pray. Father, we we just need you. I'm not pretending to have all of the answers. But what I want for my life and for my friends is I want the kind of transformation Peter went through, the kind of transformation that turned him from a person who was forcing the kingdom out of his own strength to the kind who was willing to walk back into a burning city and an emperor on the warpath, the kind of Peter who was willing to surrender and give up all of his rights, his right to run away to a safer place, 
Father, I want for my life and for my friends here to know what it's like to be deeply shaped and formed by the different types of suffering that you're inviting us to walk with you through. God, we sing songs like you're the son of suffering, but then, Father, so much of my life, I'm avoiding it. Not willing to embrace it or walk with humility through it. And I just pray that you would just transform my life and our lives into the kind of kingdom culture lives that are marked by the gentleness and joy that Polycarp exemplified. 80 and six years I have served him here and he has never done me wrong. So with joy and peace and life, I'll entrust my life into his hands even now. Father, would we trust you like that? Holy Spirit, I just invite you to do the work that you need to in our, it just individually in our hearts and in our life. Just bring to light those areas where we are refusing to or wanting to avoid your pathway through the fire, through the suffering, through the pain, where our flesh is demanding to have its way. Just work in our life in this week, in this way. Remind us even this week of your kingdom culture as seen in the Beatitudes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.